Well, amen. I love Brother Rick, don't y'all? Amen? And Paula? And uh, they've been dear friends, gosh, I don't know, 25 years? It's been a, been a long time. When I was a young man, uh, and uh, it has been a lot of years as we think back, and I was just uh, sharing how beautiful your auditorium is again. Uh, it's the second time I think we've been here since you went in the new auditorium, and uh, it certainly is just, just so beautiful and uh, wonderful that you have it, and it's paid for, too. Amen? And uh, so what a blessing that is. I, I wanna, I'd be remiss if I didn't take a moment just to thank the church for supporting us. And you all have faithfully supported us for many, many years. Uh, the last two years for all of us has been quite different. Amen. And uh, so it's been quite different for us, too. We haven't been able to be on the road as much as we normally are as far as traveling and being in churches or traveling overseas because of COVID and all the things that are happening, and God's opened up other doors of ministry for us, and uh, we've done a lot of online counseling, a lot of uh, online streaming, teaching, and things like that, but we are still traveling, and things are starting to pick up some now, So, uh, but uh, everything we do, everywhere we go, and as God blesses, uh, you are part of that, and uh, so I want to thank you, both of us want to thank you, and it's meant so much, especially all the churches and individuals have supported us over the last year and a half when things haven't been as busy. So certainly it's uh, certainly been a, even an extra blessing then. So again, we just say thank you to the church. We love you all and pray that you'll continue to pray for us. As you can see on the screen, I want to talk this morning about getting to the heart of conflict. Now, let me just ask you this morning, how many of you have ever been in a conflict? Raise your hand. Okay, wow, everybody. I would hope you'd be honest and say, yes, I have, okay? If you're married, you've had a conflict, amen? If you've got a mother or father, you've had a conflict. If you've got a son or daughter, you've had a conflict. If you've got a friend, you've had a conflict. We all deal with conflict. So whether you're married, whether you're a young person, whether you're a teenager, whoever you are here today, you need to listen. This message is for you. So turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 4. And, uh, and I want you to turn, if you would, in honor of the Word of God, stand with me if you're able today as we look into the perfect and precious Word of God. And I thank God it's a living Word, amen? It speaks to our hearts, it's alive, and it speaks to us. So as we read it, I pray that you would uh, pay attention to it as God speaks to us through His words. James chapter 4, and I'm going to start at verse 1, and I'll read down through verse uh, 10. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and ye have not, ye kill, and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners." And purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Father, we humbly come before you today in Jesus' name. And God, I pray that you would do that, Father, today that only you can do through your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you might reach from heaven with your holy finger and go through every seat here today and touch our hearts and break our hearts afresh. In our relationship with you, break our hearts afresh. In our relationship with each other as husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, I pray, God, if there's someone here today that's coming to this building today, maybe has come many times that does not know Christ, that the day might be the day of salvation for them. And Father, if there be those who walked in this building offended at each other, be those who are in conflict with each other, I pray, God, that you would help them see Father, how they can reconcile and resolve that conflict. And help us, Lord, I pray, whether we are experiencing currently conflict or not, Father, that we would, Father, hear the word of God, but not just hear it, be doers of it, and apply it to our life, and remember the truths that you're teaching us here this morning. So, Father, we want to thank you for your word that speaks to our hearts, and we want to thank you in advance For all that you're going to do, if we pray, we ask these things, agreeing together in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. And you may be seated. I can remember years ago, in fact, it has been many, many years ago, when I was studying engineering at Virginia Tech. I've got a degree in mechanical engineering. And and during that time, I took a course on friction. You say, well, preacher, that sounds like something very exciting to take a course on friction, amen? And, but that was one of the courses I had to take, and they define friction in this course as a tangential force that resists relative motion between two surfaces that move across each other. The tangential force, okay, that resists relative motion of two objects that move across each other. And the magnitude of the greatness of the friction... Of the t- is determined by the surface of those two objects, whether it's smooth or whether it's rough. Now, I want to give you a very simple illustration, but one I can relate to anyway, and that is you can look at my head. And my head is very smooth, amen? Debbie can tell you this. She likes to rub my head. I like for her to rub my head too. She's my wife, amen? Nothing wrong with that. But she rubs my head, and it's, she says, man, your head's so smooth. But, you know, when, if she were to sit there and just rub it like this, you know, it starts getting hot. Did you know that? It just starts getting hot. But if she, what she normally does, she'll get some lotion, some lubricant. <laughs> and she'll put some lubricant on her hands, and, and she rubs it like that, and it's smooth. It feels good. I like it. Amen? And, I mean, it's not like Paula with Rick's hair. He's got all the hair on it. Uh, you know, and it's just rough. It resists that motion, you know, rubbing back and forth because all that, all that hair, I mean, goodness. And, uh, you know, so, you know, if lubricant, when two objects are moving across each other, if lubricant is applied, then there's smoothness. But if it's not, it gets, we might say, very, very hot. And, you know, when Debbie, as I talked about the lubricant being lotion, applies that lotion, it makes it even more smooth, and there's less friction, we might say. Now, the lubricant we're going to see today, the lubricant for the friction of conflict is called grace. Amen? 
And we're going to see that today as we look at this, but the biblical equivalent to friction is called conflict or strife. And all of us experience conflict or strife at some point or another. Rather than two surfaces rubbing against each other, there are two people rubbing against each other, or there are two people grinding against each other, and there's a lot of friction. There can be a lot of heated temperature, amen, if something isn't done about it. Now, the church that James is addressing at this time in James chapter 4 was full of conflict. There were brothers fighting with brothers, sisters with sisters, husbands and wives, wives with husbands, parents with children. It was a church in conflict. So James poses a very passionate rhetorical question. And he does that at the beginning of verse 1. He said, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Where, where do these wars, where are all these fights come from? James saying, where in the world is all this friction? Where in the world is all this conflict? Where in the world is all this strife coming from anyway? But I want you to notice something, that when he answers the question he just posed, and he does, he doesn't say that the conflict they're having is coming from a lack of skill in conflict resolution. He doesn't say that it comes from not knowing the five steps to conflict resolution. Rather, he answers his question with a second rhetorical question that takes us really to the heart of the problem or the cause of conflict. He says at the end of verse 1, Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members. The word lust there comes from the Greek word hedon. And we get our word hedonism from it, which is a word that describes a person who has a passionate desire to please themselves through the pleasures of this world, or they're a very self-pleasing type of person. Someone rightly defined conflict this way, and I wrote it down years ago, and I'm sure Brother Rick has read this. I may have said this before, but I think it's it's worth saying or bearing repeating again. It says, conflict is my self-life irritating your self-life. It's my ego irritating your ego. It's my self-life rubbing your self-life the wrong way, and you react against it. And what James is saying here, he's saying all this fighting, all this warring and friction is because we have a bunch of people in the church who are out to please themselves, to live a life of self-pleasure or to live a life of self-pleasing. And listen, whether it's in the relationships in church, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a family or a nation, if it's full of people whose thinking is it's all about me, it's all about my comfort, it's all about my agenda and having my way, then you're going to have a lot of conflict. Amen? I have people ask me a lot of times, says, what is the major problem, all these years you taught on marriage, what is the major problem that you see in marriages? And I say, Meism. And they say, what's that? I said, that's somebody who's filled with themselves. Amen? With filled with me. My main problem in my marriage is not Debbie. My main problem is dealing with me. And that's what James is really saying here. A marriage that has a husband and wife who are all about getting their own way, who are self-seeking, self-absorbed, is a miserable marriage filled with conflict. And James is saying that the warring outside of us is coming from the warring inside of us. And couples often focus on the external circumstances and the external circumstantial causes of conflict instead of 
looking at themselves as the cause of that conflict. But James says in his opening verses that we need to look a lot deeper. That is, we need to look at the heart of the problem, and the heart of the problem is our heart. When we realize that, I yelled at Debbie because I didn't get what I wanted. I screamed at her, said something harsh to her because I didn't get what I wanted, and I was afraid I wouldn't get it. We then see that the problem is not the circumstances, the problem is within me. At this point, we're not pointing fingers at our spouse. We're not pointing fingers at somebody else. We're pointing fingers at ourselves where they need to be pointed. We understand that I'm the one at fault. And the sin came from my heart. We sin because we want, listen, or desire something that pleases us and we don't get it. That's exactly what James is saying here. Listen, we all have the proclivity to blame the circumstances that led to the conflict rather than owning our sinful response to those circumstances. I read a very helpful illustration of this by Puritan Thomas Goodwin uh, several months ago, and he said this. He said, the dung heap, the dung heap smells worse when the sun rises and heats it up. You say, what an illustration this is. Amen. But I thought it's, you'll see. What is the cause of the worst smell? The sun's rising is indeed a cause, but it's not the efficient cause, only the circumstantial cause. The efficient cause of, or of the worst smell is the material in the heap. The sun was merely the circumstances that brought it out. The sun cannot be held to blame for the smell. The stink is in the heap, and so is the blame for it. It's foolish to raise your fist to the sun as if it were the culpable for the hench's stench. The problem is not the sun. The problem is in the heap. <laughs> when I read that, I thought it's easy if we're not careful to raise our fists at the circumstances that get us angry, get us upset with others. And when we're doing that, we're blaming, as Goodwin says, the heap, the circumstances, not the stink or the smell that is the cause or the heart behind the conflict. The stink is in our heart. And even as I said in Sunday school, in Jeremiah, it says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Our sinful hearts are the root cause of our conflict. And James says that these out-of-control desires within us are warring in our members. They war within us. What does that mean? He's saying that there is a war going on within our heart. And who is the war with? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17, he says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. When he speaks of the flesh here, it's, it isn't speaking of just our body, but also our depraved human nature, apart from the influence of the Holy Spirit upon us. Paul Miller says this about the flesh. I think it's a great statement. It kind of opens our eyes. He says, our flesh reverses the two great commandments. Instead of loving others, we love ourselves, pride. And instead of loving God, we seek other gods, idolatry. What a great definition it is when we think about the flesh. The Spirit of God that resides within us compels us not to yield to the flesh. As it says in Galatians, we're to walk in the Spirit and not yield to the lust of the flesh. But James continues by sharing with us the escalation of conflict. In verse 2, he says, you lust. 
and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain, ye fight and war. Now notice the threefold progression of the conflict, their escalation we see in these verses. He said, you lust or desire, and then you do not receive what you desire, therefore you fight and you war. So there's a progression there. Thomas Parr says, it is when desires go unfulfilled that the idolatrous heart of man rises up in protest, resorting to abusive speech and causing contention. Let me pause and say that it's important to note that James does not say that every lust or every desire is necessarily wrong or necessarily sinful. Certainly there are sinful desires. There's a lot of sinful desires. There's sinful lust. But he does not say that the problem is that they have desires, rather that our desires are so out of control that they become a demand. They become a hot desire. They become out of control desires. They become a demand within our heart. Now, I'm going to give you a personal illustration of this, and I hope this kind of uh, gives, uh, gives an understanding of what I'm saying here. I remember several months ago that I uh, was thinking to myself, I sure would like to go down to Crank and Boone Ice Cream Shop. And Crank and Boone, if you're in Lexington, it's one of the favorite little ice cream parlors there, and it has wonderful ice cream. I like ice cream. You all like, like ice cream? Amen. And uh, so I, I thought, I'd like to go down there, and, and it was in the afternoon, and I thought, I really, really need an ice cream. And so I went to Debbie, and I said, honey, listen, uh, she was at her desk working. I said, why don't we go down and get an ice cream at Crank and Boone? And, uh, you know, one of her favorite little places to go. And I thought she would be delighted and say, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Let's hop in the car and go, you know. But instead she said, Sam, I, you know, I'm kind of busy right now. I need, really need to finish doing this office work, this book work I'm doing. And I really don't, can't go right now. And, and, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I reasoned in my mind, the stronger I concluded that she needed to go. And the reason I concluded that is because I wanted to go. Now, I hope some of y'all can relate to this in different circumstances. But I, the, 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 the real core of this is I really wanted to please my flesh with an ice cream. Amen? And that's not a bad thing, necessarily. It wasn't bad. It wasn't a bad desire that I wanted Debbie to go with me to get an ice cream, okay, and to have ice cream with me to go on a little date, we might say. But she didn't want to go. And I thought to myself, you know, this, this need, this desire within me became a need. And that need became an expectation. You know, I expected her to go, you know. And I thought to myself, after all, you are my wife. You need to submit to me. Let's go, you know. <laughs> now, I'm just being transparent, amen. Okay. And that is my good desire, get ice cream, became a demand. And I insisted that she go, but in she insisted that she stay there, and she needed to finish her work. Now, Paul Tripp describes what happened this way. He says, a desire battles for control until it becomes a demand. The demand is then expressed as a need. My sense of need sets up my expectation. Expectation, when unfulfilled, leads to disappointment. Boy, was I disappointed. Amen? No ice cream. Disappointment leads to some kind of punishment. Hmm. That's exactly what happened in my illustration with Debbie. I mean, I had a good desire, became a demand. When she rejected it, I began to feel we needed to go. I had an expectation that went unfulfilled, and I was disappointed, so 
I punished her. I gave her the silent treatment. Amen? I thought, if she won't get ice cream with me, I just won't talk to her at all, you know? And, you know, isn't it funny how we can get into that progression that we see here? And that's exactly what James is talking about. James is saying that when these hyperlusts within us, these hot desires linger on and on, they escalate into a war to prove what we want is right and that we deserve what we want and we deserve to please ourselves. Paul Tripp continues by saying this. He says, if a certain desire controls my heart, there are only two ways I can respond to you. If you help me get what I want, I'll enjoy and appreciate you. Amen? <laughs> but if you stand in my way, I'll experience and probably express anger when you're around me. I want something, but because of you, I can't get it. So I'll quarrel and fight with you. And I think if all of us were honest here this morning, we could look at instances in our life and say, yes, that's happened in my life. So we see the cause of conflict is living a self-pleasing life where a desire, even a good desire sometimes, escalates to a need that if not met results in disappointment. And this leads to conflict where we quarrel and we fight. But James next shows us the consequences of this or the consequences of conflict. And the first consequence he talks about is we don't stop and pray. We don't take time to pray. And he says in verse 2, yet ye have not. Why? Because you ask not. You're not praying. You have not because you ask not. James is saying that God, and he's reminding these people, he's, by God is reminding us that he's a generous God who wants to delight our hearts. God wants us to delight in him. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17 says that God richly gives you all things to enjoy. Psalm 23 in verse 6 says God wants us to experience goodness and mercy all of our days. James is encouraging believers to seek God for their desires, to seek God for their pleasure. You do not have, he says, because you do not ask. Now listen, folks, God wants us to come to him as our provider, and actively seek everything from his hand. Earlier in the book, in James chapter 1, verse 17, James says that God is a father of light from whom every good and perfect gift comes to us. It's only when we embrace and believe that God is generous and wants us to come to him, and we see God as a generous God, it's only when we embrace that that we'll trust him, and we'll pray to him. And let me pause and say that God is not saying that Christians should never desire pleasure. He's not saying that. And I think it's important for me to take time just to say that and mention that this morning because God is the creator of pleasure. Amen? There's nothing wrong with desiring to hike through the woods and enjoy God's creation. There's nothing wrong with watching a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise. We're to take pleasure even in a good meal, amen, which I do. We can take pleasure in a, in a ball game, in a sporting event. We're to take pleasure in each other as a husband and wife, as brothers and sisters in Christ. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, which I encourage you to read if you've never read it, the head devil in the book talks to his subject demon called Wormwood about pleasure. And the, he says the enemy 
that the head devil is speaking of, when he says the enemy here, he's speaking of God, he's speaking referring to God or Jesus. And he says this, the head devil to his demon, Wormwood. Never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground or God's ground. I know that we have won many a soul through pleasure. The devil's speaking to his demon. We've won many people through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention or God's invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasure which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which is, it is least natural. An ever-increasing craving for ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula, he says. An ever-increasing craving for ever-diminishing pleasure. Lewis is stating a very important theological truth. I believe that all's true and all-lasting pleasure is from God. All true and all-lasting pleasure comes from God. I recently read about an interesting experiment that pictures the pleasure-seeking life that goes after that which cannot satisfy. And the experiment shows that a male butterfly will ignore a living female butterfly of his own species in favor of a painted cardboard butterfly if the cardboard one is bigger than the butterfly, the male butterfly. If the cardboard one is bigger than he is, bigger than any female butterfly could ever be, the male butterfly courts the piece of cardboard nearby the real living female butterfly opens and closes her wings in vain. Well, in the same way, we might say that the cardboard pleasures of this world, the cardboard pleasures of this world and of this day flutter around us. And, and as they do flutter around us, they give us, if we entertain them, instead of going to God, we go to these pleasures of the world, they give us perpetual dissatisfaction. Milton Vincent states it this way, these fleshly lusts are vicious enemies, constantly waging war against the good of my soul. Yet they promise me fullness, and their promises are so deliciously sweet that I often find myself giving in to them as if they were friends that have my best interest at heart. When my soul sets empty and is aching for something to fill it, such deceptive promises and pleasures are extremely hard for me to resist. However, the Bible is filled with passages that invite us to enjoy and take pleasure in the one who provides real and lasting pleasure. We all need to continually feast upon God's promises and his words. Promises such as Psalm 37, 4 says, To light thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Promises like in Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. It's promises like Psalm 16, 11, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Correctly aligned prayers are those that desire to align and commune with God and seek God to give you only what he can give you, true and lasting pleasure. But all James doesn't stop there. He also says that when we do pray, or if we do pray, we pray amiss. That is, when we pray, 
And we're in this kind of self-seeking pleasure mindset or sinful lusting mindset that our prayers become self-centered prayers. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lust. They were praying self-centered prayers using God to get what they desired. They were trying to use God. God, give me what I want. Give me this pleasure of my heart. Instead of thy kingdom come, thy will be done, they were praying, my kingdom come, my will be done. They were trying to use God as their own make-a-wish genie, we might say. And listen, folks, God's not interested in answering prayers so that we can fulfill our own sinful desires and lust. You know, you can say, well, God, would you just bless me and help me to get this account, help me to make some more money? You know I need a bigger house and a better car. We want to take a vacation to Hawaii. Uh, You know, we can have these self-focused prayers that are consumed on our own lust if we're not careful. And when we're full of self-pleasing, which is what James is talking about here, wanting things done our way, we start praying wrongly motivated prayers to get God to do for us what we cannot control and manipulate and do for ourselves. And God says, when you pray that way, I'll not hear it. When you pray that way, you're praying amiss to consume it upon your own lust. The first consequence of conflict is a lack of prayer. The second is self-centered prayers, but the third is we become spiritual adulterers. Look at verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. God is reminding these children, these people, that he loves them the way a husband loves a wife. And God loves us the way a husband loves a wife. We are the bride of Jesus Christ. And that adultery takes place when I exchange the love that I promised to God as his bride with a love for the pleasures of this world. That's spiritual adultery. So James is saying that all human conflict is rooted in some way to spiritual adultery. And he further states that when we exchange his love for the love of the world, we become the enemy of God. We fight against him and what he wants for us, and that is to take pleasure in him and to delight in him and him alone. Believers who over-desire the pleasures of this world turn into a practical enemy of God whom they claim to love. Wow. We'll never solve the fighting and conflict problems until we address the adultery and idolatry, James is saying, within our own hearts. Let me pause here and say that if someone claims to be a Christian and persists in living a life as a friend of the world or the taking in the pleasures of the world, their problem may be even deeper. That is, they may not really know or be a Christian at all. They may need a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul describes this person In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 18 and 19, he says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. He goes on to say in verse 19, Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. We all need to examine ourselves and ask ourselves where we find the primary pleasures of this life. Are we finding them in God? Or are we finding them in the world? Is God the 
chief source of the pleasures of my heart or is the world the chief source of the pleasures of my heart? If the world, if the answer is the world, then we're committing, God is saying, spiritual adultery. When we're fighting with others and get angry, we need to ask ourselves, what am I defending? What do I want that I'm not getting, that I'm striving to get? A fourth consequence that results from living a life consumed with self-pleasing, James says, is you provoke God's jealousy. Look at it in verse 5. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Not only does God become an adversary to those who pursue finding pleasure in the world, but God's Holy Spirit within us is provoked, it says there in verse 5, to envy or jealousy. Ken Hughes states it this way. He says, even when we sin, by seeking our pleasures in the friendship with the world, we are greatly loved. For jealousy is an essential element of true love. We are brides of Christ. And the Holy Spirit does not want us to go somewhere else to have our needs met. The Holy Spirit's true love for us evokes a proper intolerance of straying affections. And that's why James says, do you think the scripture says in vain? It says, vainly, the Spirit dwelleth in us, lusteth to envy, that God is jealous over us. We are his bride. We are the bride of Christ, and, and God is jealous over our affections. He wants us to be more affectionate toward him, to love him with all our mind, heart, and soul, more than we love the things of this world, the pleasures of this world, and even pleasing myself. So when we seek the world to get what only God can truly give, we grieve the intensely jealous spirit of God that dwells within us as a child of God. So we've seen the cause of conflict, consuming desires that escalate into demands and unfilled expectations. We've noted the consequences of having these desires leads to not praying. Let me just stop here and say this too, that one of the things when we have couples and we're counseling and they're having conflict, continual conflict, one of the things I'll tell them to do is say, listen, I want, you to, I want to give you a practical exercise to do. As soon as you feel that you're getting heated up and starting into a conflict, you feel it coming. You know when it's coming. As soon as you start feeling that coming as a husband or wife, I want you both to agree that you'll stop right now. You'll look at each other and say, I love you. Hold hands and you'll pray and ask God to help you resolve that conflict. It's amazing what that'll do. And we've had so many stories of what it did do. But he says the consequences of these hyper-desires, hot desires, leads us not to pray. Or when we do pray, we pray self-centered prayers. Then we become spiritual adulterers, and we provoke the jealousy of God. So in looking at all that, the answer, the practical thing that we would look at today is, well, what's a cure? How do we deal with it? What's a cure for conflict? And thankfully, God gives us this wonderful answer in the beginning of verse 6. I love it. Look at it. But he giveth more grace. We just sang about grace. Amen. Amazing grace. But he giveth more. What church? Grace. But he giveth more grace. Listen, folks. The cure to conflict is he giveth more grace. This is not speaking of saving grace. But it literally means greater grace, or even as Augustine said, God gives what he demands. 
This means that there will always be an unending overflow of God's grace available to God's children in every situation and every circumstance that we could ever face. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy, and listen to what it says, and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, folks, for our daily needs, there's daily grace. Amen? For our sudden need, there's sudden grace. For our overwhelming need, there's overwhelming grace. In every conflict, there's more grace. No matter what we're facing, no matter how bad it gets, there's always more grace. Songwriter Annie Johnson Flint says this, His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Listen, if you find that all you think about is yourself and the pleasures of this world, and you desire deliverance, you sit there and say, that's me, I desire deliverance, there's grace for the asking. Perhaps your wife or husband that's stubborn to the core, who's always wanting your way, you're sitting here today, and because of your selfishness, your marriage is on the precipice of divorce. Let me just say that God gives more grace. Perhaps you have a terminal disease, there's more grace. Perhaps you just lost a loved one. There's more grace. Maybe you experienced a heart-rending divorce. Listen, there's more grace. Maybe you feel like you're here today and you feel like a total failure. There's more grace. Hallelujah. Maybe you feel that you can't forgive someone. There's more grace. But God puts a condition on getting this more grace. Look at what it says in verse 6. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the, what church? Unto the humble. God says there's a condition on this more grace. I'm going to resist the proud in heart, but I'll give more grace unto the humble. That grace is reserved that he's talking about for the person who is humble before God. Charles Spurgeon said that a lady came up to him one day and said, I pray for you every day that you might be kept humble. (laughs) She was very fine looking and well-dressed, Spurgeon replied. Thank you very much, but you remind me of a failure in my duty. I've never prayed for you that you might be kept humble. Oh, dear sir, she cried, there's no need for such prayers, for I am not tempted to be proud. Observed Spurgeon Riley how proud she was to obtain such a strong delusion. <laughs> John Stott says, At every stage in our Christian development, in every sphere of our Christian dis- discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Augustine, as I stated in Sunday school, and I'll state it again here because it's, it's, it's so true, pride is a mother's sin that's pregnant with every other sin. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16 and 17 lists sins that are an abomination to God, and pride heads up that list. God says in Proverbs 8, 13, I hate pride and arrogance. In Proverbs 16, 5, God says, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand joined in hand, he shall not be unpunished. 
C.J. Mahoney, in his book on humility, defines pride this way. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him, or they dethrone God and enthrone themselves. He goes on to say, pride takes on innumerable forms, but has only one end, self-glorification. That is the purpose and ultimate motive of pride, to rob God of legitimate glory and to pursue self-glorification, contending for supremacy with God. The proud person seeks to glorify himself and not glorify God. Jonathan Edwards, many, many years ago, perhaps one of the greatest theologians who's ever lived in this country, he wrote a little book titled On Revival. I think I first heard of this book. From a friend of mine many years ago, a revivalist friend by the name of Jim Cody, a dear friend of mine, even as I say his name, it, it kind of breaks my heart because he passed away some years ago. But we would uh, pray together, went soul winning together. He was just a real dear friend, had a real heart for God. And, and he studied revivals, and I think he brought this little book to my attention many, many years ago. But in this little book, he says that uh, he saw his little town of Northampton, Massachusetts, that is Jonathan Edwards, that the revival was over because of fighting in the church. It's kind of what James is saying here in chapter 4. Fighting broke out inside the church. Fights and quarrels and warfare and strife and controversy erupted and killed the revival, he says, two or three times. He says the thing that kills revival and that kills spiritual vitality more than anything else is spiritual pride. And he said, here are six things that he says are marks of spiritual pride and are therefore marks of spiritual humility. And I want to share them with you. They're so profound. And as I do, I want to ask you to take some personal inventory as I read these. Jonathan Edwards says, first of all, he says, spiritual pride makes you more aware of others' faults than you are of your own. Also, but humility disposes you to be far more aware of your own faults than you are of others. Second, pride leads you when you speak of others' faults to have an air of contempt and disdain for them. But humility means whenever you do speak of other people's faults, you only ever do it with great grief and mercy. Pride leads you to quickly separate from people who you've criticized or criticize who criticized you. That means you're cold to them and you avoid them. But spiritual humility means you stick with people even through difficult relationships. You don't give up on them. He said a proud person is dogmatic and sure about every point of belief. Proud people cannot distinguish between major and minor points of belief because everything the proud person believes is major. Fifth, A proud person either loves to confront because they like winning or proud people refuse to confront because they don't want criticism and controversy. But a humble person confronts when it's necessary. If you overlove confronting or hate confronting, if you do it too much or never do it, it's because you're afraid you're not humble. Humble people confront necessarily. Proud people confront too much or too little. Then sixthly, He said, a proud person is often unhappy and sorry for himself. Here's the reason why. Proud people are filled with self-pity because, first, they're so sure they know how life ought to be, and secondly, they're sure they deserve a good life. But humble people say, I deserve to be cast off. 
But only by God's grace am I living. And I don't know what's best for me. Only God does. As a result, he says, proud people are always filled with self-pity and unhappy with life. And humble people very seldom are. They have no self-pity at all. What an inventory. I read that and I thought I have to share that. We're talking about revival here in our hearts. And I would ask you this morning as I read those, how are you doing? After hearing these six descriptions of pride and humility, how would you assess your life? So while there's always more grace, as James says in verse 6, it's reserved for the lowly. This more grace is reserved for the humble. In verse 10, James again reminds us that the rivers of grace flow to the lowly heart. He says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Many years ago, the great preacher Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse stood before a great crowd, and he said, up is down. And after a lengthy pause, he said, down is up. He was declaring the spiritual law that God exalts the humble and he resists the proud. Jesus said on three separate occasions, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus said the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus said whoever finds their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. But not only did Jesus say these words, he lived these words. Because we see in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We might ask, what was the mind referred to in Christ Jesus? It was a mind of humility. Listen to the description of the greatest act of humility known unto man in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. And following, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant and was made into the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. To crush our pride, we need to look to the cross of Christ. To be, not be full of pride, to avoid be full of pride, we need to be full of God. Milton Vincent states in his little book, The Gospel Primer, which we have recommended many times since we've been here over the last few years, He said, pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel. And the more pride is mortified within me, the less frequent are my moments of sinful contention with God and with others. To conquer conflict, we must replace the self-love that's a manifestation of pride and the self-pleasing that's a manifestation of pride with God's love that leads us to humility where God gives more grace in every conflict, in every situation, in everything that we face in life. Let's bow our heads. Heads abound. As you bow your head this morning, I hope you reflect on several questions. 
that I might pose to you this morning, certainly as you took that inventory and I read these six descriptions of pride and humility by Jonathan Edwards where he described how that pride destroyed revival and how there was fighting in this church between members of the church because of pride. As we take an inventory like that, if we're honest to ourselves, we'd have to say, oh me. Oh me. Could you say here today that as you look at your life, as you look at conflict, could you say here today that you've been trying to seek your pleasure, your desires, more from the world than you are from God? Would you say there's many times in your life that you become that spiritual adulterer that James talks about when we become friends with the world and enemies of God? Could you say here this morning that you are walking humbly before God and humbly before man? Do you qualify here this morning for that more grace that God describes? Why should we be selfish and self-seeking when we can swim in the oceans of all the pleasures and delights that are available to us in Jesus Christ? Why should we be defensive when all the charges against us have been dismissed by God in Jesus Christ? Why should I be offended at my wife? Why should I be offended at my brother? Or you be offended at someone when I have the love of the king of the universe, King Jesus? Why should we resent giving forgiveness or granting forgiveness to someone else when we're washed in Christ's forgiveness? Humble yourselves before the Lord, the Bible says, and he will lift you up. Will you this morning do what it says? I didn't read these. I read these verses to begin with, but I didn't go over these verses at the end of the message. But will you do what it says in these verses, in verses 7 through 9? Listen to them as your head is bowed. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil who wants you to be lifted up in pride and self-glorification, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. And purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Lord, do that work in hearts here today that only you can do. Lord, you know that every person here Father, has a particular need that you're dealing with them about. Lord, I don't know what that is, Lord, but I know that any time your word is given out, Lord, that you want us to respond to your word in some way. For some here this morning, it may be to come and repent of their pride and ask you to help them to walk humbly before you and others. Father, for some here today, it may be, Lord, that they have become a pleasure seeker of the world, and they seek the world's pleasures more than they seek the pleasure of God and delighting in you and the beauty of Christ. Father, for some that may be here today, they do not know you. Father, they know about you. They have a head knowledge of you, but they don't really know you. And Father, I pray today that you might Grant them the gift of faith to believe and trust in you as their Lord and Savior today. And the need in their heart is salvation.
So, Father, I pray that you would do that in hearts, which only you can do through your Holy Spirit. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And amen. Let's stand, if we could. And I don't know, Brother Rick, do you want to have a stanza of invitation? We can have uh, the, the piano.